I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Now, when I left the scene, my expectation was essentially that there was going to be a cataclysm because I was convinced it was a lynching. You'll remember Dallas Lip from episode one. He's the EMT who first responded to the scene where Keith Warren was found hanged. After he went home that day, he remembered thinking that this case would be huge. I was expecting other people were going to see this and that there was going to be a huge upheaval in the media and in the community and there was going to be a massive investigation and that this was essentially just going to take over. But that night, as he flipped through the evening news, he couldn't find any mention of the case. So I'm like flipping back and forth thinking it's going to be like one of the first stories, nothing. And then that night for the late news, I did the same thing and still nothing. And then the next day I got up and was looking at papers and the news and nothing. And just essentially nothing came of it. Investigative reporter Del Walters says that from the beginning, it was clear that Keith Warren's case was not going to be taken seriously, neither by the police. If you're a cop in Montgomery County, how in the hell do you get pictures of a young black man hanging from a tree and that not send alarm bells all the way up through the hierarchy of the police department? Nor by the media. The fact that it wasn't covered speaks to the racism of the time. I mean, imagine that this was a young white kid hanging from a tree in a black neighborhood. Dell understood how one party, the police, influenced the other, the media. The fact that Keith's death was immediately ruled a suicide, although the evidence suggested otherwise, essentially stalled the story from gaining any traction. Why would any journalist bother to look further into a suicide? This set off so many different alarm bells inside our own unit that we found it impossible that they did not look at it more seriously. And it was offensive. I'm your host, Alicia Garza, and you're listening to Uprooted, the companion podcast 
to the Discovery Plus series about the Keith Warren case. In this episode, we'll take a look at the role the media did and didn't play in this case, and the function of the media in influencing justice. Later in the episode, we'll hear from activist and actor Kendrick Sampson, who will offer some ideas around reimagining safety and share how he is affecting change from Hollywood. This is Uprooted. By the time Del Walters had even heard about Keith Warren, it had already been six years since Keith was killed. Nobody knew that this had taken place until 92. For Dell, it all started with a voicemail. And I never will forget the voicemail when I came into the studio, into the office at the time. It said, um, Mr. Walters, we think we have pictures of a boy being lynched. That's enough to get your attention. In a strange series of events, Keith's mother, Mary Cooey, had been robbed. Inside her stolen purse were crime scene photos of Keith hanging from a tree. By the time they made their way to Del Walters, he had no idea who the boy in the photos was or who they were connected to. So we had these photos of a young man who had been hanged. And at that time, we didn't know where he was. We didn't know where the hanging had taken place or even that it was in the DMV. The only other piece of evidence he had to go on was a sliver of a check still in the purse. It said, Cooey, Deckman Lane. So we cross-referenced, we found Mary Cooey, and I remember the call. You know, and, and how do you ask somebody, are you missing your purse with photographs of a young black man hanging from a tree in them? And she said, that's my son. And I said, what happened? And she said, that's what I'm trying to figure out. Dell learned from Mary Cooey that she had spent the last six years trying to find answers about what happened to her son. From 1986 to 1992, she did anything she could to gain information. She filled binders with police reports and newspaper clippings. She posted flyers asking for information about the case. She tried escalating the investigation to the FBI. Yet despite all her efforts, Keith's case remained ignored entirely by both the police and the media. That is, until that message appeared in Dell's voicemail. And that's where the journey began. The first stories were, how did this happen? How did we not know it happened? And those were the original stories. And then after that, they branched out into who killed him? Was it a lynching? And, and yeah, I mean, it grew from there. Dell has been an investigative reporter since the 1970s. He has a sharp memory for the details of the pieces he's worked on during the past four decades. When he thinks of Keith's case, he sees it as... The one that got away. Keith is always going to be the one that haunts you. Because he knows that had the police done more, had they kept doing their job and looking further into the story, the news media might have done more too. And those two forces combined could have helped Keith's family find answers. But what he most keenly remembers is Mary Cooey, the toll it took for her to constantly search for answers and come up with nothing. There's one day in particular. I remember where we were sitting. We were on the campus of Walter Reed Army Medical Center. It was a beautiful day. And um, we just met for lunch. And she, I don't know if she knew that she was, was dying then, because it certainly did not appear that way. 
but she just said, take care of Keith for me. And I never will forget her making, making me promise that I would not let go. She was preparing to go to her grave, not having the answers that she wanted with regards to what happened to my son. And that's a terrible legacy to leave behind if you're a parent. How do you right that wrong? And I think that's the question that all of us should be asking right now. How do we right that wrong in 1986? What if Keith's case had been covered at the time? What might that have looked like? Well, what research shows is that, for example, in news media, the way that they cover Black victims of homicide is different from the way that they cover white victims. Dr. Yoon is a sociologist who studies race and racism in film, television, and news media. She says that typically, in the news, white victims are complex human beings with family, with backstory, whereas Black homicide victims are much less complex. According to research from the Prison Policy Initiative, Black victims are less likely to be acknowledged in the media at all. And Dr. Yoon says that when they are, oftentimes the media coverage works against them. That's really problematic because those stories, especially when we're watching the news, we think that that is what reality is when it's not. It is one perception, and the perception is unfortunately colored by racism. You'll remember how the news covered the murder of Trayvon Martin, constantly comparing him to a thug because of the hoodie he wore. You dress like a thug, people are going to treat you like a thug. Let's, let's be honest. Some people look at someone in a hoodie and they think maybe they don't belong in the neighborhood. But I do wish that there was something, anything I could have done that wouldn't have put me in the position where I had to take his life. I think the hoodie is as much responsible for Trayvon Martin's death as George Zimmerman was. Dr. Yoon says that's because newsrooms are predominantly white. The racial biases of the people making the news bleeds into the stories they shape. The loss of white lives is framed as tragic, whereas the loss of black and brown lives are treated as normal, acceptable, even inevitable. And, and yes, even black victims are treated as, as essentially criminals, right? And, and the kind of digging up of backgrounds of black victims uh, in ways that they do not do with white victims. We see a lot of these stories involving crime and the police get twisted within the news media. But Dr. Yoon says that this is a broader issue in all media coverage. She cites a study from the organization Color of Change. There was one study that showed in the 2017-2018 season that out of all the crime shows that they showed, that police are overwhelmingly shown as heroes and that the system it works. So it shows that everything is fair and just. Dr. Yoon remembers one example of a director and a producer who had filmed more than a dozen network cop shows. He says that there were two basic categories of crime shows that he was able to tell and do. They were the, the kind of cops as infallible and heroic or the three-dimensional complex detectives, right, who are flawed, but then they deal with their biases. And this particular director said that they never got to make shows in which cops are actually acting in a criminal way. It's a reminder that the way media represents the police is very similar to the way the police would have themselves be represented. 
And so this is a bias that actually <laughs> creates, I think, a general societal perception that our criminal justice system works and that we shouldn't question it. In episode two of Uprooted, we heard from Carlene Ponder, the co-chair of the Silver Spring Justice Coalition. She says media coverage, including the police, is overwhelmingly positive because these stories usually originate from within the police department. I mean, without community groups like the Silver Spring Justice Coalition, where we challenge the narrative that generally comes from police, we would continue to have media coverage of police misconduct in a, in a manner that basically accepts whatever press release was written by the police department itself, usually making themselves out to be heroes. In Keith's case, the limited coverage that did surface initially came from a police blog. Carlene says this dynamic plays out within the criminal justice system as a whole, where the perspectives of police and other officials are elevated above the perspective of victims, especially Black ones. So when you talk about the criminal justice system, you're talking about courts, you're talking about judges, you're talking about prosecutors. Large parts of the community held them in high esteem, right, for many, many years in this country. I mean, they were trusted. That's why you have police officers give testimony in court, because they could often sway the jurors. And so the likelihood of a Black person being able to get up and counter the police officer's testimony by saying, you know, this officer beat me senseless. I was just walking down the street minding my own business when this officer called me the N-word and then began to beat me with his flashlight or baton. I didn't do anything. It wasn't me. I didn't rob the store, whatever it is, you know, they're, they're being accused of. The likelihood of that person's testimony being given credibility and weight was very slim. Very slim. Which is later reinforced by the media coverage of the case. And in a lot of cases, I don't think the media even covered, right, the counter-testimony from the individual who was perhaps being charged with a crime or whatever it is. Although it may be too late for Keith Warren, Carlene does see some hope when it comes to media coverage for victims like Keith in the future, especially when it comes to police misconduct. With the advent of social media and cell phones, victims and bystanders now have a means to bring their side of the story to the table. It is only very recently because Black people in particular now have agency to speak up for ourselves that the media has taken more interest in giving more balanced coverage to the criminal justice system and consideration to how misconduct may be part of that system and, and has been part of that system for a very long time. Carlene says the change we're seeing is that tools that were once only in the hands of the professionals are much more accessible now. More and more people have access to media outlets that didn't exist before. You know, that includes bloggers, right? I know activists who've done great work by going out and actually covering protests, being on the scene, 
having, you know, moment-by-moment accounts of what's happening on the ground from an activist perspective. And, you know, they're sharing their work as an activist, but also as really as a media professional in that sense. In the past, media typically referred to print media, broadcast, advertising. But now, regular citizen journalists, with their cell phone videos, blogs, Facebook Lives, they've become another pillar of the entire media system, offering another point of view that's too often been ignored. So, I I mean, I think that all those are changes in the media that are good because they're helping to give a counter-narrative to what has been standard in American media coverage of the criminal justice system, which is we trust our officers, we trust our judges, we trust our prosecutors, we hold them in high esteem, and whatever they have said is just the truth. And because this new type of media has become so popular, it's begun to affect and change the others. I mean, I do think that we are seeing much better coverage of misconduct and and bias in the criminal justice system, policing system, from mainstream media as a whole. For a long time, you might have seen a publication like Ebony, right? (laughs) Talk about something like police brutality, but it probably wouldn't have gotten coverage in, say, Time magazine. And so I do think the media is doing a better job of covering these issues now. So far, in this episode, we've heard from reporter Del Walters about the media coverage, or lack of it, regarding the Keith Warren case. And we've heard from Dr. Nancy Wang-Yoon and Carlene Ponder about how media coverage treats Black victims and how the power of social media is slowly turning the tide. Up next, we'll hear from Kendrick Sampson, the actor, to talk about police presence in Hollywood and what he is doing to change the system. You know, Kendrick, I love seeing you all over the television. Even though Insecure is one of my favorite shows, I think my favorite experience of you on TV was with How to Get Away with Murder. (laughs) (laughs) And, Mm. um, And speaking of getting away with murder, a lot of people know you from the characters that you play on television, but you are a three-dimensional human being that is quite active in your community. And I'm wondering if you can tell our listeners, how did you get introduced to activism? You know, you and I have talked about this before and just like discovering new things that informed our activism, whether it's experience of our parents growing up. And, you know, for, for example, I... You know, my my dad was black, my mom mm-hmm. is of European descent, right? Mm-hmm. And he's of African descent. And in when I was growing up, there weren't a lot of interracial couples, if you will, especially in my area. And so even the feeling of not fitting in and not, you know, having knowing what my true identity was or being confused about it, and usually because other people were questioning it, right? Mm-hmm led me to empathize with folks that felt like misfits. And I think that is kind of the foundation. Yeah. <laughs> I think a lot of that informed 
my activism as well as I had an uncle that was dying of AIDS when I was young. And there were so many um, circumstances that that informed. I always think about what came first, the chicken or the egg, but right. there's not a whole lot to indicate if, you know, if it was in me first or as opposed to all of the situations growing up that I believe informed my activism, even moving out to L.A., like the first scene I did in class was Malcolm X and Betty Shabazz out of the Spike Lee's Malcolm X. And we didn't do a great job. <laughs> we ain't do a great job. So the, the coach was like, uh, read this book. <laughs> this is the autobiography of Malcolm X. <laughs> and we worked on it for about two months and f- discovered so much. But I didn't realize, you know, as I was learning and, and studying this for acting, it was also informing my politics. Same thing with Roby Theater Company. Around the same time I joined Roby Theater Company based off of Paul Robeson, right? Honoring Paul Robeson. And I had to learn about Paul Robeson. He's one of my faves. Me too. I just bought a bunch of albums the other day. I went to the reparations yeah. club. I was like, y'all got Paul Robeson yes. on the thing. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. A lot of stuff has has definitely set me on on that journey. And then meeting folks like yourself mm-hmm. obviously inspires me and and learning that people have been doing this work far before I even I ever discovered the grassroots space or the policy space. And it's and it's encouraging to know that people are that you don't have to reinvent the wheel. You don't have to make some. You know what I'm saying? People are already doing that work. You just have to join in. Mm-hmm. You know, this country over the last decade has experienced incredible upheaval, and most of that has been centered around issues of race. What is your perspective on? why this country is in such upheaval around race? I think the short answer is is they keep on putting Band-Aids on a problem. And because a lot of, you know, the foundation of the systems uh, that they built can't survive without groups of people to exploit Mm. because that was a, a, a central function of these systems that they were based on our oppression Black people's oppression, mm-hmm. indigenous folks, right? And Black people in particular were targeted by these systems and fueled these systems. They were the labor, they were the, mm-hmm. the IP, the product, you know what I'm saying? They, it was multi-layered that, and interwoven that these systems cannot exist without someone to oppress, I think Malaika Jabali, I always think about her, her tweet. Um, you know, if you actually meet the material needs of black people, then it upends capitalism, right? It upends these systems. And they don't want that because they they thrive on that. I think a lot of people feel the way that you do, right? Which is that, you know, black people have been oppressed for a long time. And Black people have fought back. Like part of our culture, our traditions, right, are that we resist unjust systems and processes that deny us our humanity. And at the same time, there can be a little bit of resignation too, right? Like, okay, we're just in cycles. It's This happens over and over again. And sometimes that leads people to make decisions that they're not going to get involved either because they don't think things can change 
or because they don't think that they can be a part of change, right? They don't think that they can be people who can um, inspire change. But you have made a very different choice. And in that, you know, again, I've seen you organizing. I've seen you protesting. Talk to me a little bit about why you choose to be involved as opposed to being resigned, right, to the way that things are. If I'm thinking about my nephews and nieces, which makes me all a little tingly sometimes, mm-hmm. I have probably 24 of them. And no matter how big wow. they get, some of them are close to 30. I have a, a, a lot of, you know, you know how we do. Uh, so, so some of them are close to actually my age. And I still see them as children. I still see them as the baby that I, you know, used to, you know, mess with or, you know, make laugh, feed, wipe their butt, whatever, you know. And <laughs> right, right. I think that is central, central to what motivates me to do that work, that I want them to not go through things that I went through. And I see a future that is absent of a lot of the things that I had to struggle through. And I know, and I've seen glimmers that that world is possible through folks like yourself, right? Painting that picture. A lot of organizers, a lot of people don't realize are artists and they can paint these beautiful visualizations of the world that we didn't really, we didn't have the tools to imagine, right? The tools were taken away from us to imagine those types of futures. And with our resilience, folks like yourself, right, come up, come up and say, actually, I've broken through and I've gotten that visualization back. I got these tools back. Let me provide them for you as well. And that's what really, really motivates me. And even more so seeing kids that were in high school, that are currently in high school, like here in L.A., defund the L.A. school police by $35 million, one third of the budget, you know, ending random searches and seizures. These are kids organizing, you know, and I was in high school. (laughs) I was doing doing different things. You know what I'm saying? That was not a part of my agenda, you know? So, so it's super impressive. I'm like, if they can do it, I, you know, in even my most tired days, I'm like, this is who I'm doing it for. And they have the vigor and um, the ambition and the hope that it takes to move forward and be innovative in, in some of these strategies. And it inspires me. Mm. I think probably more than anything, that's my motivation. You were shot with rubber bullets at a Black Lives Matter protest in downtown LA, if I'm not mistaken. And what got exposed right here is the tactics that police use to squash protest right? Um, Under the guise of often, right, protecting public property or protecting public safety. But the violence that was happening wasn't in the protests. It was coming from the police. So I'm hoping you can talk a little bit about this so that our listeners get a better sense of how policing is functioning, even with people who have large platforms and celebrities, right? Yeah, I think... Last year, 2020 uprisings, police were backed into a corner and exposed 
because they couldn't operate in the shadows as they usually do. Because the spotlight, we were all at home and we decided what people get to focus on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They were desperate because the PR machine that they usually have was failing and they wanted to set an example. And that's what I feel like happened in our in our instance in that protest that came from Pan Pacific Park and, and we marched to 3rd and Fairfax and they were so afraid that we would go into Beverly Hills because that threshold is right there that they surrounded us, kettled us in. They don't have what it takes to handle those situations because they were not formed to do that. They were formed to do what they did functionally, as you said, which is squash rebellion. They've always been, it's the same reason we say that they're not a part of the labor movement, right? That police associations are not a part of the labor movement. They were always functionally used to squash labor disputes, labor uh, uprisings and, and protests. Well, given the work that you're doing with Build Power and Black Lives Matter, it seems like uh, you're involved in a ton of efforts to make sure that the system as it stands does not get to continue to enact such violence on our communities, either by the neglect and divestment from our communities or from the segregated practice of offering safety to some and refusing it for others. So talk to me a little bit about some of the work that you're doing in Los Angeles to address the crisis of policing and segregated safety. And tell us how that ties into your vision for what the world and how this country should function as it relates to safety and justice. Yeah, so we started an initiative called in, at Build Power, our nonprofit, called Liberate Mental Health and Hollywood for Black Lives. Last year, Hollywood for Black Lives in particular was to stand in solidarity with the movement, with uprisings, and saying, what can we do in Hollywood? What What is our part that we can do within our sphere of influence that would make a big statement? And one thing was getting over 300 powerful creatives and professionals in Hollywood to sign this list of demands, the first one being divest from police, removing police from our ecosystem in Hollywood forces them to reimagine what safety is. If you're removing the mechanisms that's supposed to keep us safe, right, then you have to acknowledge that we now need a new safety system. What is that going to be? So a lot of the work that we're doing is figuring out how to transform this industry that we work in and then replicate that in other industries. I think that it's important to do it here because Hollywood is the largest propaganda machine, right? It is utilized to perpetuate white supremacy, anti-Blackness, and all over the world. And it's got the largest reach, the biggest PR platform. So I think it's really important to start to start here. And that's a, that's a lot of the work we're doing besides, obviously, getting out in the streets and supporting our grassroots partners with policy and protest. That's excellent. What do you say to people who might be listening who would say, you know, 
I think you're being a little bit harsh about police. I think police are actually here to keep us safe. I think a lot of us have to really think about if we've ever had a conversation about what safety actually is, conceptually. What safety is and what it takes to be safe. What we define safety as, what we feel when we are would call ourselves safe. In particular, systems of safety, if we're breaking down the systems of safety and really understanding and deciding, determining if they work for us and the people that we love most, the people that we feel are most targeted in our lives, the people that are differently able, the people who are trans, darker skin, who, you know, Black folks who have been formerly incarcerated, whatever it is, the people that we feel are most vulnerable, people struggling with mental health issues. If you look at the statistics, if you look at their personal stories and experiences, overwhelmingly so, you will find that they are not safe, that they don't feel safe, that there are no systems of safety that account for their experiences and center them so they can truly thrive. And if we have that real conversation, then we have to establish police. You know, if there's no system that we are like, you know what, that is the system we turn to that keeps my trans nephew safe. Right. If we can't point to that, then the systems need to be built, which means the systems we have are inadequate. And in particular, a lot of as we study a lot of these systems, particularly police, we find that they make us less safe, that they actually introduce harm into the situation. If we're using the protest as an example, you know, we always talk about Miriam Kaba, right? Miriam Kaba says, you know, that all harm is not considered crime and all crime is not considered harm. And so you have crimes that are out there, these police criminalizing us for protesting and saying, we're not going to take this shit anymore. Y'all are not going to kill us. Mm-hmm. That is not a harmful act. That is a, a liberation act. That is a healing act. We are fighting to heal for the healing that we need. Mm-hmm. And they came and shot us with rubber bullets. They came and beat us with batons. They were enacting harm. But their harms, for some reason, are not considered crimes. But our non-harmful actions are considered crimes. And then we're criminalized for it. And then we're punished for it because that's the only system we have around accountability and consequence really is, is a, pun- a system of punishment. And that is not true accountability and it's harmful. So we're talking about, you know, re-ma- reimagining safety. So Ali, um, who's here, has, is this incredible young black woman who mm-hmm. has helped me organize my house and she's gone over and over and over again she always says you know everything has a home right everything has a home you have to make sure everything has a home when you put that tooth take that toothbrush out you put the toothbrush back it has a home right <laughs> put it in its home let it feel safe right you know what i'm saying the coffee uh, filters Put them back with the rest of the coffee filters. Things that are alike, they go together. Everything has a home. And we don't have that for our problems. That number that we get to call 
for mental health care services? What is that number for wellness checks? What is that number for the overwhelming majority of the situations that the police handle that they shouldn't be handling? Where is that specialist? Mm-hmm. What is that home? Every one of those problems needs a home and can have a home if we just are really intentional about sitting down and breaking down what safety really is and building the systems around those needs. Mm. That is an excellent place to wrap this conversation. Kendrick, thank you so much for joining us today. This was insightful and inspiring and hopefully gives our listeners something to think about as we are reimagining the world and the country that we want to live in. Absolutely. Absolutely. I appreciate you. As always. That's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening to Uprooted, the companion podcast to the Discovery Plus series. I'm Alicia Garza. On the next episode, Citizen Detectives. In this episode, we'll see how, when victims are not labeled the perfect victim, their cases get ignored leaving it to their loved ones to get any unsolved questions answered. We'll learn more about Keith's sister and mother and their respective approaches to finding the truth. We'll also talk to Lenita Baker, co-counsel for Brianna Taylor and her family. I think that the only thing that's preventing Brianna family from getting justice is the benefit of the doubt that prosecutors give to police officers that they don't give to everyday citizens. If what happened um, to Brianna had been done by anyone other than police officers, they would be in prison right now. That's coming up next on Uprooted. For more on Keith Warren's case, check out the miniseries on Discovery+. Plus. Uprooted is produced by Now This for Discovery+, Plus, in partnership with Pod People. Special thanks to the production team at Pod People. Rachel King, Matt Sav, Ivana Tucker, Jazzy Johnson, Liz Mack, Brian Rivers, Vincent Cascione, and Amy Machado. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.